but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, we're back from hiatus. This is the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Yeah, we've been gone for a minute. Two weeks. Two weeks and one day. Something like that. <laughs> Why were we gone? Because I wanted a break. Full stop. That's all you've got yeah. to say to those who've been waiting to hear from us? That's, that's your tired, lame excuse? Mm, I think it's a pretty good one, yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, we took a break, but tennis did not. Tennis yeah. ramped up the action like nobody's business. There were like 17 tournaments. Quite a few we might not even touch on this episode because there's other stuff to talk about. Yeah, a lot happened. We've got to get through. We're not going to catch you up on what we're doing because we're not doing anything. We just gardened. We set up our garden. <laughs> <laughs> That's Very not nothing. <laughs> You don't often hear that verb in the past tense. We just gardened. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what do you want to start with? The Bellamy final? Yeah. So for all the mothers and grandmothers out there, don't look that up. Do not Google this. It is. We're referring to the Robert Pattinson flop. Flop? Of what the do same you mean? Name. It was a movie oh, that really? nobody oh, saw. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. See, somebody made, I, I tweeted about the Bellamy final mm -hmm. and somebody said that to me and I didn't quite get it. Because, you know, Robert Pattinson has just never been on my radar. <laughs> Did not even register. Did not know that. Well, you know, there's a running joke that Team and Zverev are the sons of Nadal and Federer, respectively. Mm. And there was that photo shoot where Dominic and, <laughs> and Zverev were looking very Bellamy-esque. Yes, looking very Central European. Mm -hmm. Looking like they were posing ahead of the shoot. There's also this active Tirev ship going on all over social media that I feel just popped up. I think a lot of these Sasha fans just appeared out of nowhere. I'd never, all of a sudden, never seen this before. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, there are millions upon millions of Sasha Zverev fans, and I feel that I am finally too old for tennis Twitter. What I dread is the inevitability of when Zverev does something dickish again. And then the woe is me, how dare you attack my fave on steroids <laughs> that's going to yes. ensue. Because yes. it's going to happen. Because now we have a chorus. So how did we get here, first of all? Dominic team had a massive week. A tougher road to the final. Obviously took out Rafael Nadal after he won 50 sets in a row. I think that's where the record stopped, mm -hmm. right? Nadal set the record for most sets, most consecutive sets won on any given surface in ATP history, breaking a 34-year-old record held by John McEnroe on carpet in the year of McEnroe, 1984. This isn't the first time that Dominic has beaten Rafa on clay. Most notably, he beat him last year in the Rome quarterfinals, again at the quarterfinal stage. But a lot of us... Speak for yourself. <laughs> I wasn't too upset. I don't want to say I was hoping, but I didn't mind that Rafa has suffered a loss through this clay season because I get a little too fidgety when wins build up. To that, I say whatever. I've never really cared about that. And I think what we saw this week was Nadal fans echoing a lot of what you just said and also mm. being doubly okay with it with the loss coming to team because he's seen as not a Nadal heir apparent on clay, but somebody who's non-threatening because he's respectful and, you know, is a booty twin, is exciting to watch. Mm -hmm. If the loss had come to somebody like Zverev, it would have been a lot more irksome, wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, I, th I think there's a few things going on. One is that Dominic is seen as a more pure clay tennis player. His game is more tailored to the surface. The second thing is that Dominic is rarely a threat to follow up that win with a huge title. Or, more importantly, to follow up a big win in a best-of-five situation. He lost meekly to Rafa at Roland Garros last year. He hasn't performed well 
in the final stages, in the semifinal stage of Grand Slams at Roland Garros. But what does that have to do with anything? I'm saying that I think Rafa fans are content to give him the win and let him be cute because they know it's not going to happen at a major. Okay. Now, Sasha Zverev, on the other hand, is very, very good at capitalizing on his chances, which he's shown over and over again. Again, last year, Dominic took out Rafa at Rome. Djokovic took Dominic out, and then Zverev won Rome for his first Masters title. This is a guy who, if you're looking to, you know, who plays on the big stage as well, he hasn't shown it at majors yet, but in championship matches, he's very reliable. Having lived through the early years of Federer, I see a lot of parallels between Zverev and Federer. Not to say that Zverev will go on to have the same kind of career, or even half the career that Federer's had. But there was a, like a when will he looming over Federer's early career, where every time he showed up at a slam, folks were expecting the big breakout moment. And then it, it took a little while, right? He had moments where he had to control his temper, get his game into focus, which is not dissimilar to Zverev. Mm -hmm. And we've talked and heard lots of people talk about how Zverev is yet to make the fourth round of a slam, which is crazy for somebody who owns three Masters 1000 titles. Mm -hmm. He's won a slew of other smaller events, and he's only, what, 21? Yeah. That's the other thing. 21 is extremely young in men's tennis these days. And Roger... It felt that he had made us wait for a long time. It really wasn't that long of a time. It's just when you're in it, it feels like, okay, when is this guy going to break through? He's so talented. But 21 is still a baby. Sasha has been trying to put on muscle, gain endurance, and these are things that just come with hard work and and time, unfortunately for him. Like, it's, it's just going to take some growing. This final, though, was a huge disappointment. Uh, I think that's the only way I can put it. It was 6-4, 6-4. It did not feel that close. It didn't feel really at any moment that Dominic had much of a chance. It's interesting that Zverev and Kvitova, the champions this week, have less traditional clay court games. They play first strike. Zverev won this final by winning the majority of short points. And it's almost like a video game tennis. Straight lines, big serves... It's not grinding, looping, clay court tennis, but it's effective. We've seen a lot through this clay court season of non-traditional, so-called non-traditional clay court players playing well. If you look back to when Sharapova figured out clay, to, a, to, to some extent, don't kill me here, but Serena figured out clay too in terms of mm. getting the big, big results that she didn't get earlier in her career. For the longest more time... More consistently. More consistently. Yeah. For the longest time, she had only won one French Open. And from the turn of, I would say, what, 2010, maybe, onwards, we've seen that big hitters succeed on clay. Not to say that somebody like Nadal can't generate the spins and play his brand of tennis to negate all of that. That still happens. Mm -hmm. But there's more room for your traditional power hitters to do well on clay, providing they can figure out their movement and whatnot. And added to that, I saw something from Matt Trollope earlier in the week saying, it's a pity that we don't really get a full grasp of what to expect from Roland Garros because none of the lead-up tournaments on clay, except for Rome, really give you a semblance of what the playing conditions will be like at the French Open. You have green clay in Charleston, you've got the slippery surfaces in Stuttgart where... So, uh, you get Colleen in the final, and then you've got Madrid with the altitude, and you get to Rome now, and that's like the last tune-up before Roland Garros, and you don't really have a full picture as to what to expect. That said, you still have a lot of the same names showing up from week to week. You have Kvitova winning, you have Pliskova going deep every week, Kiki Burtons is doing well, winning Charleston, and then getting to the final in Madrid last week. It's difficult to make sense of any of it. But you're talking mostly on the women's side. On the women's side, yeah. sure, yes. Because on the men's side, you could say that Monte Carlo and Barcelona are a little bit closer to the red clay that they expect in Paris. Yeah, right? I mean, but regardless, the the expectation is one-way traffic on the men's side anyway. That's true. Not that I'm expecting mm -hmm. that, but that's that's where that narrative is. I'm just, like, ignoring that altogether. <laughs> that Well, because of Rafa's dominance, what you are saying, the phenomenon is mostly on the women's side. Yes. Where big hitters or or the dominant players on other surfaces can adapt better 
but this came about this discussion on my end in response to you talking about Kvitova and the big hitters doing mm-hmm. well, right? right? Like, there's a reason for that. Petra's done well in Madrid before. She's won three times. You could explain away Coco's finals appearance in Stuttgart because of how the surface was playing. Kiki, which we'll get around to talking to in a little bit, she's somebody who actually has shown a uniformed clay court pedigree yes. throughout her career. If you want to peg somebody as having clay court aptitude or being a specialist or whatnot. That said, I still think somebody like Petra can Petra on any surface. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Has she like shown the big that? Yeah. hitters, provided they're moving well enough, they can get the job done as well. But back to this Bellamy final, Sasha Zverev, for all the derision he comes under on this podcast, he was so focused, dialed in from the jump. It was it was a really impressive performance. And we saw it in Canada last year, in Washington, in Rome, and now in Madrid this year. Because he won Rome last year, I don't think we can say this is a fluke that the surface was playing in a way that, you know, made his game more lethal because he can do it in other places. He won, get this, 68% of his own second serve points. Like, that shouldn't happen. That's because, yes, he was dominant on serve, but Dominic was just not making it happen. He was not taking his chances. He didn't seem like himself. And I mean, it's understandable if he was uh, physically and mentally exhausted after beating Nadal and then Anderson. He had never beaten Anderson before. And he also had to get through Borna George. He's 24 years old. 23, 24 years old. He's used to playing year-round. The Nadal match was two, two sets, not even two hours. He should have been up for that final. <laughs> I don't buy that. I agree. Sometimes you're just not there, your game isn't there, it seems like that's what it was. Mm -hmm. When he's firing, he's incredible to watch. When he's not, it's kind of a train wreck. It's, yeah, it's just bad. I was gonna say before the final that Dominic had kind of reverse Samson'd himself. He cut his hair and seemed to regain power. Lots of folks out here talking about how the haircut is terrible. <laughs> I, I, that I do not understand that. I don't. I don't mind the haircut. At all. I mean, like he's young, and that's what young guys wear these days. Mm-hmm. So, I suppose it is a fuckboy haircut, according to commentators. Didn't you under- have one? I did. Was I a fuckboy at the time? I don't think so. I'm still not quite sure. I know what a fuckboy is. <laughs> we frame this as the Bellamy final, and then we have pictures of Alex Verov kissing the knob. Of his Excuse spiked me? dildo trophy. Oh my god. You know, the trophy is hideous, but it is phallic with a, a sense of real danger. <laughs> <laughs> Do with it at your own who, peril. Who designed that? I, don't, I really don't know. It was, it was designed for this final, for this moment. <laughs> what else is going on with Dominic? He and Kiki are going strong. She got to the doubles final here. They are just loving Here life. being Madrid. Right. There I'm, had been a, a media blackout almost for a couple months where we weren't getting the love of my life, my better half, you complete me, mm-hmm. we're it was so on nice. top of the world, you know, social media, Instagram posts. We weren't getting that stuff. Man, are they back in full throttle. Now, do you think this relationship can withstand winning? Because they have thrived under historic losing streaks. Oh my god. <laughs> well, at this point, well, Kiki is back to winning some matches. She's doing well exactly. in doubles. Can, can it withstand the winning? He, for both of them, you're yeah. not shading one player. No, they were both terrible. It would make sense because if they're both winning, they're both staying in tournaments, joint events longer. They get to spend more time together. Mm. It would make the long distance less of an issue. I feel like it would become more of an issue if one of them weren't winning. And the other one was, you know, Mm -hmm. flying to the sky. Speaking of Kiki, there was a rematch of the Sharapova-Mladenovic grudge match in Madrid this year. You're just going to completely skip over the fuck this shit. (laughs) Dominic is so adorable, even when swearing in English. Did Did he even get a warning? Did anyone take him seriously? Did anybody hear it? Did the ump hear it? Oh, I don't know. TV did. It was amazing. I watched it on loop so many times. Like 20 to 25 times. I was a little bit turned on. Not gonna (laughs) lie. Okay, so back to Kiki Sharapova. 
Maria exacted her revenge. I know it's probably so sexist to even frame it this way, so I apologize. Well, she but was, it's news. It is news. She was asked about it before the match, in anticipation of the match, and she said something. She gave your classic Maria shade. <laughs> she said something to the effect of, you know, I really find it interesting to watch when a player is going through a losing streak and how they manage to come out on the other side. I find that very interesting oh, wow. or something like that. Something to that wow. effect. Don't quote me. But it was your it was first rate Sharapovan shade. To quote Wendy Williams, that's white shade for ya. <laughs> Sharapova is back in the top forty for the first time since she came back. After having made a quarterfinal in Madrid, correct? She was videoed yesterday hitting some balls with the king of clay, Rafael Nadal, in Rome. And she termed... Did you see that? Yes, and she termed it hitting with the goat. Yeah, I sure did see that, There too. were no qualifiers. And I saw someone on Twitter opine that Sharapova really is embracing the villain right now. <laughs> Not giving a fuck about offending any of uh-huh. the, the goat fan bases, right? I do feel that... Twitter is want to read in way too much of that because Sharapova is hitting with the clay goat on clay. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what she meant. But she said she was very nervous, but she felt like she had to shoot her shot. Did you watch the rally? I did. It was very good. She certainly held her own Mm -hmm. and she won a point against him. Yeah. And said, okay, I can go home now. We're done. (laughs) I actually, you know, I, it felt like there was a lot of goodwill it was great to see a top female and male athlete hitting together because you almost never, ever see that. No. It was fun. It was cool. It was. I enjoyed watching it. No qualifications. Mm-hmm. I hope to see see that a lot more. But then Sharapova goes on to lose to the other Kiki, Kiki Burtons, mm-hmm. in the quarterfinals, who then goes on to the final and loses to Kvitova. What else that's happened not a, That's oh. not a bad loss. One Kiki too many, obviously. <laughs> But that's not a a loss to be caught up about. Mm -hmm. Petra Kvitova is one of the more remarkable stories of this season so far. I don't know where to start. She won her fourth title of the year in Madrid. We we actually missed last week. She won Prague, also on clay. Which makes five since her comeback, right? (laughs) Right. So she came back, what, about, like, around a year ago. It was the French Open. Right, she played in the French Open last year. by playing at the French Open. She had success on grass, won a title there, and, you know, it was hit or miss. She had great shining moments, but this year has been truly something else. And her coming out on clay is beautiful to witness. Now, as you mentioned before, this is her third Madrid title, so this is not unheard of. And again, she won Prague on home soil. Yes. So it's, I still wouldn't read too much into it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like... Take take whatever I say with a grain of salt, because by the same token, and I'm I'm saying don't read anything into it. I'm still saying it's Petra; she can win anywhere. Okay, but I will say, as you said earlier in this episode, I think Petra can boss almost anyone, almost anywhere, and that Petra's peak is better than almost anyone in history. Like I would put her best against I don't know everyone but Serena. Um, but that, that, that's the thing. We haven't seen those two play their peak exactly. against each other. And we see... The thing with Petra is that we see her peak so rarely. But what I really liked about watching her in Madrid is that we saw her winning with athleticism. She was willing to scramble. And I think her her athleticism is something that's underrated because a lot of times she can boss people around the baseline with her ground strokes. But on clay, where it has a bit less impact... She was, I mean, she was exhausted, and you saw her dig deep mentally. She was exhausted from the second round. Right. It looked like she was on death's door right. from very early in the tournament, and she managed to just keep going to the point where she was winning matches more easily at the end of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Now, the final, she should have been down and out in this final. She looked like she could barely walk around the court in the third set, and here we are. She dug deep again, and I know this is a sports cliche, but it was incredible to watch. How how 
deep did she dig, <laughs> James? <laughs> and against someone like Kiki Burton's, who has a game tailor-made for this surface. She plays with topspin when she needs it. She has an incredible forehand. She did a lot of drop shots, short shots that drew Petra into the net and passed her with precision. It was a, a great contrast in styles. But for Petra to be able to deal with that and get through Kiki was an achievement in itself. Kiki is truly the new Kiki of clay this year. Burton's has five career titles, all of them on clay, winning Morocco, Nuremberg twice, Gstaad, and then this year in Charleston. And if you recall, two years ago she was a Roland Garros semifinalist, losing to Serena. Mm-hmm. The big takeaway here for me is how fucking awe-inspiring Patrick Kvitova is. We thought that her life was in danger at one point, and then when she survived the attack, when it became known what exactly happened and the extent of her injury. We wondered if she'd ever play tennis again. And then she came back and it was like, well, can't really grip the racket fully. And we wondered whether she'd ever be able to play at her best or close to her best. And what she's doing this year, I uh, she, she tweeted something about never say never. And to my mind, her and Venus are the never say never queens. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise that the two of them, when they play each other, give us just crazy shit. They respect each other. They, I think they, they recognize each other. They see each other? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Petra did not even have a great start to the clay season. She lost to Pliskova in Charleston. She lost to Kerber in Stuttgart, which, I mean, those were horrible first matches to play because, I mean, Pliskova went on to win Stuttgart. A cliche at this point to say you never really know what to expect from Petra, but this puts her in a very good position going into Roland Garros and then to grass. <laughs> this is looking... Have you not learned anything <laughs> from tennis since the start of 2017? We literally should expect nothing. From Petra? Anybody. Okay, okay. Now let's talk about Kiki again, just for a second. She beat Sakari, Sevastova, Wozniacki, who at the time was number two, is now back to number one because of Simona Halep's early loss, Sharapova, and Caroline Garcia, and then lost to Petra in the final. I mean, I don't even think you could call her a dark horse at this point for the French Open. She's a true contender. Absolument. And you th- you, the first opponent she beats there, Sakari, is actually somebody who's been playing very well lately. She's inside mm-hmm. the top 50 now. As well as Caroline Garcia. She's been playing well as well. Yes. Took out Sharapova in the previous week in Stuttgart, right? Mm-hmm. Again, regardless of questions about the surface, the slipperness, whom it aids and whom it doesn't, we're seeing a lot of the same names throughout this clay court season. Except for Colleen, who keeps losing now. What? <laughs> this is only her first tournament since, isn't it? No, twice. Oh, okay. Yeah, she lost Madrid and then she lost again in Rome. And she lost both very, very poorly. badly. Yes, I think she 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 lost five seven love six and then one six one six. It's been um, it's been a bakery, a stretch of bakery goods mm-hmm. in recent times. It's been a learning experience for Colleen. Right after you sung her praises, I know. You after know, the Stuttgart final, I always you always what. I always know I'm going to regret it. Let's finish up the woman's side with Pliskova, because she too has had an unexpected, yet expected run on clay this spring. Your 2017 Roland Garros semifinalist, Mm -hmm. who pushed Halep to a tough three sets. Last year in Roland Garros. Yes. Yes. And beat her this year at one of Simona's best tournaments, Madrid. And... One that is run by Uncle Jan Tyriak. And again, I see Carolina as a player who is adjusting her game enough to succeed on the surface. She's not playing full-out grass court tennis, for example, on clay. She's adapting. She's retrieving. She's learning to extend points a little more and not go for that big shot to end the point, just like Petra. Her movement is underrated. It's gotten better. It, it, would, it would be hard for it to be overrated, certainly. Because people think oh it's God. trash. True. But, yes. <laughs> but no, it is actually 
underrated. It's not like she's the greatest mover in the world, but like Lindsay Davenport, I would say that Carolina is keeping herself in better fitness and has better footwork. We've gotten through the results portion of the segment, and now you can you can get into your messy mode, which is what you enjoy most. And wow. first up... Denis Shapovalov. Don't say wow like I'm doing you a great disservice. This is this is your... My milieu. This is your sweet spot. <laughs> the good news first is that Dennis is now in the top 30 of the ATP as a, what, 19-year-old? As of today, after beating Tomasz Berdyk in Rome, he will be the new Canadian number one. Supplanting Milos for the first time in years. And we also have a new female Canadian number one in Francoise Abanda. Yes. Who has overtaken Eugenie Bouchard. This one is a little different because Francoise has actually had a higher ranking before, but Jeannie's has just plummeted so low. And I'm not being messy, that's just the truth. In our see what had happened was, you caught Dennis's social media Instagram ditty and <laughs> took exception to it. So after beating Kyle Edmund in the quarterfinals to make the semis in Madrid, Dennis posted this Instagram story, a picture of him saying, checking all the hate messages saying that I can't play on clay, like... It's a picture of him on his phone. And I'm like, dude, you are way too young for this. You have been relevant for, like, nine months. That's when people started knowing your name. Oh, no, I take that back. People knew his name when he almost blinded the umpire last year, mm -hmm. which I think was in February. And the fact that we're at this point where nobody really remembers that the people who do mostly have forgiven him for it as much as he needs to be forgiven for it. He's walked the line, he's said the right things, he's apologized, he's seemed incredibly sincere about it. Still. Right. I mean, he doesn't need our forgiveness. Like, I'm not holding that against him. The reason that I brought it up was because he is almost universally considered the next big thing or, or one of the next big things commentators love him everybody loves his game he's exciting he's flashy like he's gotten i mean so much good press it's practically unanimous so who are these haters it's just like it's just not cute who are the haters <laughs> who is saying that denis shapovalov cannot play on clay it is literally something i have never heard I but it's also something I have never considered because, again, Dennis has been a relevant top 50 player for what? Less than a year? Like, who who cares if he can play on clay? I, are, are these his high school haters? People he I played against in high school that were, were talking shit about him? And now he's showing you the receipts? <laughs> Our friend Bad Toss replied to me was like, these next-gen guys need media training badly. And it, it does seem like, you know, young athletes who are in the public eye have more access to social media and they just need to uh, kind of do a little bit better. They're also from a different generation. They grew up. He was in high school when Instagram was a big thing. Mm. We didn't... In high school... I was using my Nokia brick phone. Okay, well, and you that was were a, in that high was school. That was the tail end you were of using high school. An abacus and oh a slide God. rule. My point is, it's a totally different landscape now for the, these so called next gen players. These Generation Z people, mm. like the gap between them and us millennials is so vast. Yes. And so many technologies have sprung up and died and others have sprung up in that time that we don't know we we are not hip to it we i'm are just, just not i'm just saying if dennis feels that he has a lot of haters then the rest of us are fucked <laughs> <laughs> but also dennis has and i can speak to this because i can tell the listeners i can put you on blast you have watched maybe half a match of dennis shapovalov in your life that is not true that is not as much of an exaggeration as you would like us to believe. <laughs> Dennis, in fact, has an electric game. It's not overstated. He absolutely does. It's not overstated. Yes. You watch him play and hang with Burdick and come back against Burdick today, and it's the shots he's coming up with, it's crazy. The, the, uh, the concept of a shot maker in tennis 
is often applied to people who don't deserve it, Denis Shapovalov is your quintessential shot maker. I saw him hit an inside-out, backhand up-the-line winner from the baseline, changing directions mm-hmm. against Berdyk today, that he had no business hitting and winning from a one-handed backhand. Yeah. Like, it's it's crazy the stuff that, that he can backhand do. backhand is pure power and style put together. And as much as we saw him come on the scene and be- beat Nick Kyrgios a year and a half ago at the Rogers Cup, and you looked at him and you're like, well, he's so rough and raw around the edges. He needs to develop muscle, get more power. He has power in spades now as a 19-year-old. And his decision-making is becoming so much better. And to go back to our discussion earlier about what it takes to win on clay these days, his game absolutely translates to clay. This idea of not being able to play on clay because you don't have the requisite skills is kind of a non-starter when you're someone like Dennis who has so many skills Mm -hmm. that can translate to any surface. And then again, to your point (laughs) about him and the haters, just don't do that. (laughs) What I'm saying, what I want to articulate is that I don't think, maybe he doesn't realize the machinery that is behind him, the, the infrastructure that is propping him up that a lot of players don't have. And I just want to leave it there because... A lot of players come up and do not have that support financially, uh, emotionally, in the mainstream media. Still, he said today in his press that he felt very isolated in his first year and tour Mm. navigating the comeuppedness of his career Uh and being 18 years old. He couldn't relate to the other players on tour, that generational divide, I imagine. And having not many players of his age group hanging around and doing well at tournaments. Mm. He still had his own adjustments, so I don't want right. to belittle that. Okay, thank you for being the counterweight. But you still said what you said. Exactly. <laughs> Mrs. Serena Williams Ohanian. Mm-hmm. Mother of Olympia. Okay. So since we have started with this episode agenda a few days ago, we've gone from Serena's definitely not playing Roland Garros because she pulled out of Rome. According to you. To... Well, she's still practicing at Patrick's Academy on red clay, so maybe to where we are now, Patrick has spoken to sports media and said, well, hell, she's definitely playing Roland Garros. She needed five weeks of training. That's why she pulled out of the warm-ups, and she only plays tournaments that she thinks she can win. Lord God, <laughs> Patrick Maratoglu. Oh, my God. Having... Queen Serena on his premises, creating the magic drinks and the magic training and sleeping in magic beds (laughs) that only Patrick can provide and prescribe five weeks specifically, not one day more or less, to get her ready Mm -hmm. for Roland Garros. And so now Serena will be playing at the French Open, allegedly. That's what they say. I mean, big, big time credit has to go to Mackie Shillstone, who she has dubbed Medicare Mackie. I think it showed that she was very serious about getting into fighting shape when you saw him show up. Mm -hmm. I'm just so skeptical of Patrick still to this day. Well, I think it's a healthy skepticism because he is... Let's give credit to Mackie Shillstone because we actually saw the work that Serena was doing with him. We haven't necessarily seen the work that she's been doing with Patrick. What we've been seeing is a lot of PR stunts and PR opportunities for his academy. Speaking to people, promoting the academy, and hearing from Patrick about what he is doing to get her ready. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Not that he isn't influential and is critical and crucial to her success. Not saying that. But... but he needs to not be doing the most <laughs> all the goddamn dot time dot gif dot org. Oh, that's not what I was going to say. No doubt Patrick is a megalomaniac. Everybody knows that. He's a star fucker, if you will. But Serena obviously feels that she owes him quite a bit because she's out there doing the promo for his academy as well. Don't you think? Sure, yeah. All, I mean, her social media is very powerful. Like it has, it reaches a lot of people and she's, she's been participating. She's been helping him out. So I think that that, you know, that vote of confidence from Serena is a big thing. 
And of course, I mean, Patrick's the kind of guy who will use that to his advantage. And I guess if you coach a GOAT to, what, 10 majors at this point, why not use it to your advantage? I think what what we'll be telling, of course, is what happens after Serena's done. Like, will mm-hmm. a superstar come out of that academy? But for now, I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, if Patrick's a believer, you know he thinks he could have created the world in six days. <laughs> you know he could have done one better. Mm-hmm. But the point of this is that Serena Williams is expected in Paris this year. And as a fan... I know, and as an observer, I know that Serena lives to crush our expectations. So tell her she just tell her she cannot win, and put Maria Sharapova across somewhere in the first round and see what see what happens. <laughs> just today, we got the ruling from the ITF Independent Tribunal regarding Miss Alize Cornet and the impending case to decide whether she'd be suspended or not because of her three missed drug tests Mm -hmm. spanning 12 months, ranging between the end of 2016 and into 2017. And what, well, she was found not guilty. The glove did not fit. She was acquitted. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put that out there. But the, the reason that was given was the doping control officer didn't do what was reasonable in circumstances to locate Cornet during the 60-minute window that's allotted for the test to happen. Yeah. the Actually, the whole case was pretty interesting, reading the entire ruling and reading what's typically expected of a doping control officer. It gave so much insight, specificity, into what this whole doping mechanism and organization involves, mm-hmm. right? It, was, it really was legitimately fascinating, and we're going to link to it in the notes for this episode and do yourself a favor and read it because you learn so many other tangential stuff that you just did not know. Right. What Something that I learned was that, first of all, the players have to submit their whereabouts for the entire year from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day, and it's in and out of competition because she's in a certain level of players based on rankings. The pool, the right. top 60. When you're in the top 60... In the, the the rendering that was given by the ITF, it gave a timeline as to when she was part of the 60-player the pool and not, and then back in it and mm-hmm. not. And it's really, it's the better part of eight or nine years, basically, since 2009. She's fallen in and out of it, but for the most part. And what I didn't realize is that you can update your whereabouts uh, by email, by text, by this online thing. There's an app. There's an app for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, you know, if your location is changing at the last minute, you can update the ITF on your whereabouts. Now, what was interesting to me is kind of the expectations of a doping control officer, like what is reasonable for them to do. Mm-hmm. If they show up at 8, the window is between 8 and 9 o'clock. They're supposed to, you know, ring the doorbell, take steps necessary to connect with neighbors, for example, Calling the player is a last resort because you don't want to tip them off that there is a doping inspection coming. The first two missed tests were not in question on Alizé's part. If I'm recalling correctly, initially the second one or the first one, she was contesting it but then didn't. Right. And then so this is squarely about the third missed test. The first two showed up to her apartment in Cannes and the DCO, the doping control officer, had just missed her by like 15 minutes. Allegedly, she had to go fly to Fed Cup. She left early to go fly to another tournament to beat traffic to get to the airport in time kind of thing. Which sounds kind of like hogwash and bullshit, but we're dealing with folks showing up at your house at 8 Mm a.m. Which to me is just mind-blasting. Like, that is not a life I lead. (laughs) So I can't fathom that, that I should be on call waiting for some person to show up with her husband in tow. <laughs> right. No, you'd be like, honestly, I don't want to play tennis anymore. Exactly. Go away. You'd be like, well, this is crazy. <laughs> and so the third time, Cornet was allegedly at home. But the buzzer system was not working. The same buzzer system that this woman had used the first two times was not working. When you make that initial buzz at 8 o'clock and nobody answers, you then are directed to go make yourself not visible, mm-hmm. go sit down in your car, 
don't call because if you call at that point then you're giving the player ample time within that hour window to then go do all kinds of things to alter blood samples or whatever right potentially to either evade it mm-hmm. or tamper or yeah. you know it violates kind of the covenant of prior warning or notice right the just popping in out of nowhere is kind of the point yes and so you go back to your car you come back in 15 minute increments and buzz again and then after having gotten no response those three times at 8.57, the DCO called Alizé's phone, and Alizé says that the phone did not ring, and then minutes later, she got a voicemail, which I know you can speak to that, because that has happened to you so oh, many yeah. times, unless you're lying to me and you just didn't want to pick up my phone, <laughs> my phone call. So in the whole proceedings, they heard testimony from three of Alizé's neighbors <laughs> saying that yes she was at home and yes we definitely would have let you in if you had asked us but you didn't ask us this falls under the umbrella of what's reasonable for Mm -hmm. the dco to do in that moment right because the doping control officer said well it felt to me like a matter of invading her privacy to be like well the buzzer system's not working i'm going to ask some person to let me in or just slide in through somebody else how do i navigate that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and the DCO said that she didn't have training for that specific incident. And the ITF said these things are purely within the protocol, that she should have sought other means of contacting the player without directly contacting the player, basically. When they're at, say, for example, when they're at an athletic facility, they are charged with going around, asking staff, looking for coaches, going to every court they could possibly be on to find them. Mm-hmm. But they are still required to stay in the original place that was agreed upon yeah. because they don't want to be missing anybody in transit. Right. There's so many technicalities in this whole thing that I mm-hmm. did not know about. And I learned that in, in the past, some players would give like a burner phone to the <laughs> ITF for them to be able to know specifically that it's doping control coming. If that phone rings, Mm. you know it's a doping thing. Right. Which then gives them maybe a minute or two to do whatever. You mean to say that you're afraid of needles and you you cannot (laughs) undergo this test on this day? I don't know. Okay. I'm not speaking to I have to say, when I first saw the result, I saw, oh, wow, this is another in a long line of excuses that players give when they either miss a test or fail a doping test. And to be clear, Alizé has never failed a doping test no and she was also tested multiple times within this time frame right right and two she, weeks on either end of this missed test yeah. she was tested and passed the test exactly but uh, casual observers do express skepticism and i think is warranted when you hear these things when you hear about bespoke vitamins earlier this year from thomas bellucci mm-hmm. the fettuccine the Mistests, the I'm afraid of needles, uh, over-the-counter supplement that had glucose in it. I mean, there are so many excuses, and, and many of them are legitimate. But I think we're at the point where we are fatigued by the excuses. And part of it is that the anti-doping authorities have to get their shit together. And the other part of it is that some of these players are lying. Sure. However, it helps when we are able to get these judgments and read them all 26 pages of them and learn more about the the fine details that can swing this thing one way or the other especially in public the court of public opinion right and i think i'm just practically if you have to report your whereabouts in advance every day of the year for most of each day there are going to be mistakes and i i can understand that what i found really funny was that the adjudicators, the three, found Alizé's testimony, quote, frank and compelling. And I have no doubt about that. Has <laughs> Alizé Cornet ever done anything that was not compelling? <laughs> For there better is, or worse, there is a zero doubt. One way or the other. <laughs> but this business of making every reasonable effort, one of the things that Alizé's team stated and argued was so there was such a busy time of day so many people were coming in and out of the building this woman could have slipped in 
I mean, we know we've lived well, in buildings. No, but we've yes. lived in buildings. Or that neighbors would have gladly let her yeah. in because apparently the security is lax yeah. at her building. She said before that doping control folks have shown up at her front door having gotten through that way. Mm-hmm. And the neighbors, Alizé, the coach, they all went to great lengths to say, well, it's not uncommon for people to bypass the buzzer system if they look trustworthy. <laughs> no, I will not get into oh, what girl. that means because... Duh. Lord, if Gamofisa showed up to visit a potential friend, oh, you would really, that have you gone? Did take that I there. went there. <laughs> would that have gone differently? If Victoria Azarenka was singing "Happy Birthday," would you let her in? <laughs> no. But allegedly, at the time, the first two visits, there was only one name on the buzzer system, Cornet, and at the third time, there were three: Cornet, her boyfriend, and the coach or member of her party, her team. I recall it being a coach. I could be wrong. And one of their arguments was that Alizé, between 8 and 8.45, was having breakfast with this coach. The coach then left the building, which would have then happened in plain sight of the DCO. Mm. And allegedly, the DCO had already met this coach. So that was purportedly a specific instance where the DCO should have been able to maneuver her way around the buzzer system. And then... <laughs> is that reasonable, though? That's According that's what, to that the is, ITF. That is what is at play That's here. a reasonable expectation. And when somebody, to my mind, when there's so many questions, what ifs at play, you have to fall on the line of protecting the player's credibility. I'm, that's just where I am. Yes, but there is more than one thing at play here. There's, there's protecting a player's livelihood and reputation, but there is also protecting your employees your doping Mm -hmm. control officers and sort of empowering them and giving them the proper training to do their job because this i mean clearly the authorities view their role as very serious Mm -hmm. well this is an independent tribunal right and so they're taking the words prescribed by the itf to then use it against the dc right as to what she did or who is employed by some other body yeah so the the onus is now on the ITF to go back to the drawing board, update their training, give instances, role play. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in RA training in college, that was a huge part of training. You role play. What do you do <laughs> in certain instances? As, as silly as that is. Oh my God, you're such a nerd. You show up to somebody's house at 8 a.m. Maybe they're sleeping until 9.30. You know, like, are you expected to be up at 6 a.m. every day, 365 days of the year, <laughs> anticipating doping control? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you have to potentially budget for the fact that somebody could be sleeping right i don't know i mean that's something that would go through my mind and uh the itf has to go back to the drawing board here we're not here to tell you about alizé's guilt or innocence the main picture here is how quite literally fascinating this read was Mm -hmm. i i'm not one for these lawyerly legally stuff where the prose is actually quite boring but this gave such insight into the whole process. And it also made me realize, too, that even in lawyering and these arbitrations and these so-called independent panels, a lot of it is taking your own bias and applying the so-called law. How do you come to the determination, it wasn't unanimous, that this DCO did not exercise reasonable, did not make every reasonable effort? Right. And they, But they did also... Well, they also stated that Alizé had some culpability. Basically, that she had some negligence in the whole episode. She didn't ensure that the buzzer system had been fixed, mm-hmm. right? Allegedly, her father was supposed to fix right. it, and she just trusted that he did. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, it's not exactly a fetishini situation, but... But then, is it the father who has to fix it himself, or is there a building manager who has to <laughs> fix it? That's something that I was wondering. <laughs> I mean, these things really have us wondering that about that trivial shit. Yeah. And is it really on the forefront of your mind when you've just been tested a week or two before, mm. and then you're going to be flying to Paris that day to do some commentating and then come back at night? Right. You, do, you know, it's there's a lot at play with what it is to be a professional tennis player that we as Monday morning quarterbacks and armchair critics can just never understand mm. the full extent of it. And something we've preached ad nauseum on the show with respect to doping and the doping authorities is that we should always exercise a healthy 
in parentheses, subjective, it's all subjective, a healthy skepticism with what these anti-doping folks are feeding us. That's a wall. That's that on that. What else has been happening? In the two weeks that we've been gone, there was a whole week of tournaments around the world. Joao mm-hmm. Sousa won Estoril at home. He beat Tiafo in the final. Big foe, another big result for him. Mm-hmm. But we also got the first Portuguese champion at Estoril. Mm-hmm. Tsitsipas backed up his final appearance in Barcelona by making the semifinals in Estoril. Tero Daniel beat Malik Jaziri to win Istanbul. We talked a lot about Alex Verev at the right. start of the show. But I think we neglected to mention this is his second consecutive title. Yeah. He won in Germany, in Munich, against Kohlschreiber, who has also been having a crazy stretch of good play. He too just beat Jack Sock today, right before we mm. came to air in Rome. Zverev beat Young Chung in the semifinals. Elise Mertens also on a big run of her own. She beats Tomlanovic for the Rabat title. And after we did a segment on Taylor Townsend and Chris Eubanks on our last episode, we can report that Taylor Townsend went and won another challenger. This time, she won in Charleston. I saw her beat Heather Watson and Althea Gibson to start this whole swing in Charleston before she went on to lose to Viznina. And she's now up to another career high number 73. She snapped up the French Open wildcard, but if she keeps her ranking where she is, she won't need it anymore. No. I mean, she'll get that wildcard, but in the future, for major events, she will qualify outright. During those four events, she won 216 ranking points, which is not nothing. That's like winning, Mm. I mean, it goes without saying, it's like winning a a 250. Right. But at that level... Mm-hmm. You know, the difference between a few ranking points can mean a rankings jump, mm-hmm. let alone 216. Good for her. She's still 21. She's somebody who's had so much talked about and written about her career to this point. And while I personally don't necessarily see her as a world beater. I, you know, a top 50 talent, a top 30 talent. Mm-hmm. Like, she's got so much time. That's she has, the thing. Yeah. She has a lot of talent, a lot of time. And... Make that money. Unfortunately, she was thrust in the spotlight at a very young age because of how poorly Patrick McEnroe's USTA treated her. Something we've done a lot on the show is mock the next-gen moniker. (laughs) Wouldn't you say that's fair? That's accurate? Not so much the players themselves, but just the whole concept and the branding Mm -hmm. around next-gen. Yes, With a few of our Twitter pals, it's something that's kind of become part of the body serve folklore now. A hobby? No, with the whole next-gen frat pad comparison. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. But these these next-gen players are really out here doing things. And we were asked on a previous episode, what's the main difference between the WTA and the ATP in terms of marketing the younger generations? And really what it boils down to is the ATP did such a good job of ramming them down our throats. Mm-hmm. To the point now where they're... Thank you, having thank results. you for that visceral image. <laughs> to the point now when quite a few of them are having results, the name recognition is there. And that in turn leads the future of the tour in, in a better direction and in better stead. Yeah. Zverev is number three. Chung, there's Shapovalov, there's Rublev just outside the top 30. He's 19 as well. Those four are the top four of that generation. And then there's Hachinov, Chorich, Tsitsipas, and Medvedev. Are you optimistic about the future of the ATP? Um, that would, I mean, that would imply that I really care about the future of the ATP. <laughs> Fine, and, and but no, there are some exciting yeah, players. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think obviously there's a lot of danger in saying that this next gen is going to be top ten talent in the ATP, right? Like. A lot of things can change. We don't know what's going to happen. Dimitrov is still there. Was oh, supposed to be... Oh. No, but really. Yeah, there's this but... lost generation of ATP talent that is gifted, but we're supposed to be Grand Slam winners. Mm-hmm. And, and it hasn't come to there's fruition. There's also a, a generation just below them with yes. the teams of the world mm-hmm. that could fill that vacuum more readily than the, the lost right. generation. So-called last I'm just, generation. I'm saying, yes, there, there is clearly a lot of talent and a lot of charisma hanging around 
you know, in their late teens and early 20s, that could be big things. But if the ATP ATP is hoping that these guys will turn into the next big four, forget about it. I mean, but when, when in history have we seen another big four? You know, do I think that there's going to be another McEnroe, Connors, Borg, Lendl all at the same time? I don't know. I have no idea. Can you foresee a time where Tirev, team versus Verev, becomes the Borg, the Borg McEnroe? No. That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, these guys are talented and very good, mm. but there are certain et ceteras and je ne sais quoi's with identifying players that is so wildly missing from a lot of these younger players, despite their talent, despite how well they could potentially do. I would look to Shapovalov and Chung as the two to really push yeah. the next gen. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to get used to American male players not being part of that conversation. Injury update, more worrying news for Andy Murray. He may not be back for the grass season after all. It's hard to even convey this news because it's just horrible. It's heartbreaking. His mother actually gave that news recently, saying that Andy might not be as ready as we hoped he would be. Um, so what do we do with that? I mean, he's you know he's entered in a few tournaments. I think we mentioned he was targeting Washington, possibly. He's entered in that tournament. I don't know. This hip thing is really, really hard to come back to. Or- I hope I'm not putting Bad Toss's business on Blaster, but she did say on Twitter that her husband had the same surgery that Andy did, and it did not go well for him. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not a sure thing that one is able to come back, and I'm sure Badtas's husband can play some sports, but is not an an not elite a athlete. professional yes. level athlete. Yeah, Stan Wawrinka was back briefly in Rome, mm-hmm. losing six four six four to Steve Johnson, a break in each set. So I I don't really know what we can gather from that, to be honest. No, we know that he's back with Magnus. Let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Happy trails to Roberta Vinci. I know. I don't want to say... I have definitely not come full circle with Roberta, but... I've been pushing am, you in that direction I am ready to say complimenti, buona fortuna, and, you know, best wishes in retirement. Roberta hurt me so badly. I have never in my life taken any result in sports like that it was devastating is not an exaggeration mm-hmm. um i still think about it i'm still sad about it about what could have been with the calendar year grand slam but the flip side of that is that i have to give vinci credit for what she did we are big whitney houston fans and any time Somebody can seize their one moment in time <laughs> when they're racing mm-hmm. against destiny. Yeah. <laughs> that is something to admire. Like, And to be frank, you in your fourth decade, you are too old and too grown to be holding this grudge against Roberto. That's, I, that's what I'm saying. I, I told her good luck. Congratulations. Uh, like I, the moment for as great as Serena is and all the great things that she's done and accomplished, the moment got the better of her. Yes. And that is just a fact. And Roberta seems to be universally liked on tour. And uh, she was a delight when I met with her in press. So I'm a bit biased in that instance, (laughs) in that regard. Mm -hmm. Godspeed is all I can say. And lest we forget, she is one of the elite doubles players of her generation. Mm -hmm. She has a career Grand Slam in doubles, won five major titles in total and she has a distinct game that we do not Mm -hmm. see in practice very often on the wta tour anymore and that she was able to take that game to a grand slam final is a credit to her and she was able to author one half of the all italian women's final which was the banner event for that great generation of italian wta players yeah and speaking of four fed cup titles Mm -hmm. the fighting italians Spare a thought for Alexandra Krunich, who now is the answer to the trivia question. Who was the opponent, the winning opponent, who sent both Kimiko Date and Roberta Vinci into retirement? (laughs) I have to say, I'm going to view her with suspicion from now on. 
Thierry Cote, one of uh, one of our Twitter friends, referred to her as the Croon Reaper, which was great. which is apt. <laughs> I almost stole it inadvertently. <laughs> but if one of my favorites who is aging goes up against Kroonich, I'm a, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. We'll finish the episode with a piece of mess <laughs> with your moment of zen. that is still so difficult to believe that it actually happened. The official Rome Twitter account referred to Caroline Wozniacki as Pushniacki. <laughs> what? How does this happen? It was a tweet in Italian, but the words Caroline Pushniacki jumped out. Um, what were they thinking? I, I, oh, yo, yo. And it, it's, it was actually like bigging her up, like saying, hey, Caroline's coming here. Yeah. You know, like promoing the tournament. I'm just going to say, like, Rome does whatever they want like we know that and uh in keeping with the current generation of italian players like they said what they said and i give them credit for not deleting that tweet (laughs) regardless of how rude it was on that note let us wrap up episode 122 my name is jonathan you can find me at on twitter at tennis underscore john and i'm james i'm at elliot jmr two l's two t's the podcast is on Twitter at the Body Serve, similarly on Instagram. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.